PD Raw is a podcast sharing the experiences and insights of people with personality disorders or traits by being brave and talking about the things that are shameful and painful. Humans demystify and destigmatize the things that we hide. The aim of this podcast is to let others know that they are not alone. By showing the reality behind our walls, we hope to bring people closer together, connecting in a more open and authentic way. Please be aware that, due to its topic, this podcast is adults only, not safe for work, and may contain triggering content. Howdy there. Welcome. This is Few coming at you guys. I have dethroned the queen of the pod temporarily. I am here in my alter persona of anti to lead in her stead. And with me today, I have uh, not quite a new face, but, you know, hopefully maybe it becomes regular. Joella DeVille from The Sub. How are you doing? Oh, I'm good. How are you, Few? I'm great to have the power this time. And yeah. I get why Nota does it. You know, to have the finger on the button, so to speak. And uh, I fully intend to go drunk with it. So today, I think we're here to talk about something that is really uh, vulnerable and potentially painful for disordered people in particular, and that is parenting. We're here to talk about parenting from your perspective as being a parent, my perspective of reflecting on my experiences of difficulties with my parent. And trying to talk about, you know, what do we need? What do I wish I could have done differently and that sort of thing? Yeah, parenting is parenting is already something I would say is quite the task to take on, even if you are not disordered. Boy, howdy. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, there are quite a few challenges that arise. I would just think that you know, if you have a more balanced headspace, sometimes certain challenges aren't as difficult and you don't push them away as as easily as you do if you experience other issues. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, everybody who reads on the sub, they know that vulnerability, kind of one of my hobby horses and words that I trot out a lot. But yeah. there is, uh, we kind of discuss this a little bit off air. There's a curious little riddle or not at the core of disordered people and parenting. And that can be the parent's fear of vulnerability and intimacy. But then you have this being, this child, this infant, who is just pure dependency and vulnerability. And so you have to both manage your own while also managing theirs. And that is that is a difficult space to operate in, isn't it? Absolutely. So hopefully here we can give the audience a little bit of insight or kind of unravel some thorny questions and, you know, don't have this tightly scripted. So hopefully uh, this goes as well as I know we're both capable of. Let's get started. One of the questions that we, you put to me as a place to reflect on is with some of the pain and trauma that I've already shared with the audience in my own episodes with my own mother is... What are some things that I would need from her kind of at this point to still facilitate a relationship or connection or just what would I desire from her? Maybe like even ideally or practically, Mm -hmm. is that sort of what you were thinking? 
Yeah. Yeah. Along those lines. Yeah. Just if, if you wanted to continue a relationship with her, what would, yeah. What would you need for her to do? Yeah. So I guess to get to the, so in my case, I would say that um, my mother was very emotionally abusive has never taken any sort of responsibility or accountability. Therefore, I spent a lot of time in my life trying to figure out, you know, what was her problem and how can I reach her and how can I connect and being kept out in a way that was really painful or being punished when I attempted the most vulnerable or intimate things. I remember a nameless narcissist talking about uh, self-harm and, you know, with a knife and harming himself to get his mother's attention. And mm-hmm. it reminds me of just how eerily similar some of these things go sometimes. I remember one time, you know, knife, crying, wanted mother's attention, her in front of me. And, you know, I didn't actually go through with it. But I remember just a cold, vacant stare and just nothing being there and just kind of walking off is... Um, yeah, and, you know, kind of nameless narcissist saying the same thing. You know, his mother kind of laughing at his own pain. That was the response that you received? Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, I mean, and there's just innumerable other instances or cases of things that I'm not thrilled about. Mm-hmm. And so, in order to facilitate a connection with her, I mean, the first thing is just that she'd have to acknowledge that that's real. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, this is something that, may sound like a low bar or low threshold cross, but I mean, anybody who's narcissistic or borderline who's listening, you know, how does it feel when people try to hold you accountable? Don't want to hear it. Yeah. I mean, it's a simple thing and it's also a near impossible thing if the person is just not willing or able to do such. And then after the acknowledgement and making it real, there would have to be a commitment to learning the emotional and interpersonal skills to make it so that I could have a connection to her that isn't hurtful and her acknowledging just how painful some of those things were. And I think in my case, my mother is very far away from that. I mean, I still remember there was a recent instance of, uh, I alluded to it, in another cast of a Black Lives Matter incident. And mm-hmm. she was saying some, she was using my brother and I's experience of being black as her children, she's white, but then would not listen to my input or didn't care to hear her from me. And I quite little, I asked gently, I didn't get offended about it or upset because I'm used to it. I remember I asked her, she's like, so you're talking to other people about my experiences. You're trying to use it to give yourself some authority to weigh in on this, but I'm telling you I disagree with you or I'm telling you there's something that I'd like you to hear and you're not paying attention. Like, don't right. you think you want my input on this? And she just looked me in the face and just said, no. And oh. I was like, yeah, okay. <laughs> okay. All right, never mind, carry on. Right. <laughs> you know, there's more to it. Like, I was just like, it was a real risky take for the venue that she was talking about. But it's just, you know, even at this point, like this is in the last five years or something like that, that that incident happened. And so we're still at the point of extreme invalidation and unwillingness to listen to anybody else's feedback if it differs from hers or if she doesn't want to hear it. Yeah, I, I think enough is said. So yeah. I, I think that those are some of the things that I need. But I think that I'm very far from achieving them. And I gave up a very long time ago. So that's not exactly a door that I'm sitting holding open. Right. But I think that's some of the landscape for me. So acknowledging the pain that was caused and commitment to, you said commitment to like the interpersonal skills that she would need to 
apps like to actually maintain the connection and continue to try to make repairs as best she could. Yeah, I think that's the best way to put it. And I mean, it would probably entail working on herself and some of her own things to some degree. But I mean, like, I'm, I'm reasonable, like, that's everybody's own decision. But I Mm -hmm. mean, yeah, I mean, there has to be some sort of guarantee that she's not going to continue to be a damaging presence in my life, or frankly, the life of any of the people who I currently care about. And like, that is a concern that I have in thinking about that potential relationship is even just, it would only be me at first. And I just, I have made it explicit already at this point that she is not invited to you know right. anybody in my life even if I had a child it's just I do not trust you on the basis of what we've been through right. and your lack of being able to own up to it like you would not be involved and after sending that that kind of you know ended the relationship you know okay. just you know she was just there was no no response on her side just fine then get the fuck away from me and was like all right cool and uh, i haven't talked to her for years now oh wow okay i guess with that I, I would like to maybe feed into a little bit on the healing and the places where the wounds are and ignorance feeding into entitlement because what what i what i feel like that sort of represents in terms of the way she handled it after you decided to place your boundary and say what you wanted or what you wanted moving forward that kind of cutoff thing is from on from on her side is to me seemingly like sort of like a sense of entitlement as well it's almost like this person is refusing to acknowledge any of the pain that they've caused in your life period point blank and then ultimately when you make the boundary and say listen that's it. Like, I can't do this anymore. And you move forward with your life. They, it's almost like the disordered person processes it as like, well, that's your loss, basically, which I, I'm viewing as a sense of entitlement, especially when it comes to parents and children. Cause if you already aren't seeing the impact that you've had and you're not acknowledging it and you think you've been right this whole time for whatever reason, then it, seems like the next thought process, if you're the one being cut off, would be, well, it's your loss. I did what I could. And, you know, just to kind of reconcile what they're what they're feeling inside, if that makes sense. That makes, perfect, that makes perfect sense. And I'm really glad you brought this point up. And I didn't even realize it was going to transition uh, as cleanly as it did into my experience. So yeah, I think you're entirely right about the trying to heal where the wound is and ignorance feeding into entitlement here. It reminds me when I was younger, uh, when I was 17, I moved out with my first partner. And I remember telling her at the time, it was just like, you know, I've always been kind of overly parentified and emotionally open to other people. So I've always been pretty good at like the logic of emotions. I remember my stepfather, like at one point when I was younger, telling me to like not pull that psychological bullshit on him when we're having an argument. And I was like, you know, well, this is the next thing you're going to say. Like, it's it's kind of a headspace I've always been in. And so, you know, it's with that background that I say that, you know, when I was 17 and I was having another argument with my mother and it was just like, you know, if I leave here, and we don't have our shit sorted out and like i move out and i go off and do whatever i'm going to do this is never going to get fixed because i'm never going to find the motivation to want to deal with this again 
Right. This is the time when I'm the most engaged and most motivated. And once yeah. I go off and start doing other things, this is going to fade and this is going to recede. Mm -hmm. And uh, she laughed at me or she was just like, you know, you're just trying to hurt me or just like, you know, like you don't really mean that or just, you know, disbelieving. Again, kind of the entitlement of you're always going to be in my life. Like, you know, I'm always yeah. going to be important to you. Yeah. And I remember later on her laughing about me moving, saying, just you watch when he moves out, like he's going to need me. Like he's still going to, you know, I'm still going to be an important. And yeah, that didn't pan out the way that she thought it would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly, but um, exactly yeah. like you said, you know, if you're disordered, you have your little mini reality distortion machine. If there's something that you need to believe in order to compensate yourself, psyche and your ego, you will find a way to believe it. You know, then you're in for the rude awakening or crash when reality doesn't agree with you. And then you just got to double down and be like, okay, exactly. Like you said, like when the boundaries finally come up and somebody finally abandons you, they're like, well, you know, I did the best that I could, or, you know, you're the one who's losing out for not having me in your life. But it is something where, you know, I, I, cutting her off with something that happened like maybe in the last three years or something like that mm -hmm. I mean, even as early as 17 i i just saw clear as day how this was gonna go and yeah. it still never sunk in after all those years yeah because like you don't want to i don't know if the words believe the inevitable because sometimes i think and this is something at least for myself in certain, I would say certain situations where I feel like you like, and this is coming, growing up in a religious family. Also, there's like that still small voice inside you, deep, deep inside you. That's like, you kind of realize that you're perhaps whether you're throwing a temper tantrum or you realize that maybe you're taking something for granted or so on and so forth. And like, you kind of know, you kind of know, but there's so much that you want, like you just want to deny it so badly, though, at the mm -hmm. same time. So it's interesting because I feel, feel like even with, I want to say maybe certain types of abuse, maybe, I don't know if that's the right term, but it's almost like it's designed to, you know, make the person that's receiving the abuse feel um, like too low to be able to leave that person. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Like maybe subconscious in a sense. So you get to a point where that person that's been receiving the abuse, whether it's a child or a partner or whatever, is like, oh, I'm not taking this shit no more. Or they understand, like they start understanding what's actually going on. And it's like they wake up almost. And it's like the person that was delivering the abuse just never thought, I guess, maybe that that person would wake up or that they'd be in the position. It's, I don't know. It's very strange. I like, I don't know. Yeah, I, I think the thing maybe that you're trying to get at, and you can clarify if I'm wrong, is that the point, I think that a lot of abuse is about control to uphold idealizations or childish fantasies that the person isn't skilled enough to have a mature adult relationship and the skills that it entails. Mm -hmm. um, and aside from lacking the skills, they also come from a place of weakness. They're afraid, they're insecure, they need something from you. And so, you know, you don't have the skills, you need this, you're afraid of the other person and you're afraid to get aggressive. So you do things to try to force the other person to conform to your childish, naive, alternate reality. Mm -hmm. and the, so, so long as that alternate reality stands, the person's allowed to believe it, they will. 
And then you need something that's sizable enough to break through those delusions. And then when it does, it's just like the person didn't see it coming, doesn't understand what happened. It's always a bolt out of the blue, even if it's been something where you're just like, you know, this is the dozenth time. And I think this is an experience that uh, a lot of people who come into the forums as partners uh, who are narcissistic and the other the spouse finally pulls the plug and says, that's it, I've had enough. And people right. come here and they collapse and they're just like, man, they said it for all this time, but I I didn't really believe it. Or I just, you know, they're still yeah. shocked that they're here. And it's because, yeah. you know, you were not living in reality. Like that's a part of like disorders keep you further away from reality. And you have a pseudo reality that the disorder usually is trying to reinforce. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, like when that comes when it comes down and it needs something big to make it come down, it's always flabbergasting. You're always caught off foot. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess the question to kind of center this back to you now is, you know, you're kind of in this space right now where you are reflecting on your own parenting and Mm -hmm. both the things that formed you and then also how that influenced how you raised your your own son and Mm -hmm. so i guess for you uh like what's changed what changed your attitude in terms of how to heal where these wounds are or to avoid letting ignorance be an excuse to continue with certain behaviors what's brought you to this place of trying to heal or make repair or to you know sort your own shit out to be better for your son What's brought me to this place? I feel like there, that's there's a few things, but I guess one of the things in in terms of like as I've started therapy in the last few years, and you know books that I've read and things like that, and just going back and looking at a lot of my relationship patterns and stuff like that. One of my things was like trying to separate myself like okay I act this way in relationships but there's no way that I act this way like with people that I love like well relationships being people people that I was in relationships with I felt like I loved them as well but I'm saying like you know I've got people that are close to me like my my best friend my son like I like I love these people I'm not I'm not abusive to them. Like I can't be, it's like I was trying to compartmentalize myself in different ways, in different scenarios. But the thing that I feel like I come back to is like, yeah, there could be different intensities, but it's almost kind of, I don't know if you've ever heard the phrase, like how you do one thing is how you do everything kind of. Absolutely. Um, But it just may be some, some ways are a little bit more obvious than others. And so like, as I, as I started therapy and started trying to kind of suss out my own childhood and I was trying to kind of pinpoint where my parents fit in terms of emotional immaturity and like narcissism and all that kind of stuff. The more I started to look into it, I would see them, but then I would also see me. And I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> I was like, wait a minute. What am I doing there? I'm not supposed to be there. Right. right. And so I think I just started realizing how much I actually didn't see, like how much I've never really been able to actually see myself. And I I know like you can't really necessarily see yourself objectively because you are yourself, but it's, it was just very interesting to go down the line of things and be like, oh no, like I've, I've done that. I've been invalidating. I've, you know, behaved this way and and it was just like eye opening. And then from there, I just felt like I just can't believe I was behaving this way and treating people that I love this way. And at that point, I think I 
I was probably more afraid than I've been in a, in a really long time. Like I, it, it became, I don't know, it was just, it was unnerving to recognize a lot of the stuff that I saw like within myself. And then looking at my son and realizing how I may have actually impacted him. And then, and also being able to look at him and I don't know if, if, if I'm using this the right way, but maybe I am. We'll see. You can tell me because, you know, you're the empathy overlord. Yeah. So, <laughs> Got to live up to the title. <laughs> so it's, I mean, it's hindsight, of course, but just coming to terms with my own loneliness as a child and then looking at my my behaviors overall when it came to my son even though I was even though I was with him I can see how many things that I have copied and pasted from my own childhood within my parenting and so it was almost like and this is something that he hasn't actually expressed to me so so for me right now this is more so of like this could be how it feels is just just this kind of overall sense of loneliness no loneliness like living in your like living in your own little pocket but not really being able to reach out to anybody for help and again i'm i he hasn't expressed that explicitly to me so i can't assume that that's how he feels but just the thought of it the imagine like imagining what that could possibly feel like it was like it was like well, it was just like a ton of bricks <laughs> Oh, I mean, it's sort of like the collapse, the uh, shattering of certain ideals or things you uphold uh, for disordered people in other venues. Like, you know, if something happens in their career or a relationship doesn't work out or something that's really significant to them. And then all of a sudden you see a new lens or perspective or something happens that throws it into doubt. Yeah. It shakes the foundations of your world, doesn't it? Yeah, sure does. <laughs> oh, man. So, um, you know, I have to thank you. You only gave me like, what, a dozen ways I could go with some of the things you just said? Yeah. Okay. I, I, I got to pick one now. Woo. Okay. Yeah, no. So um, I think one thing that's really important here to mention is, you know, there's a, a myth or a delusion and a fallacy that people believe a lot. It, it's not always the the case, but um, it's important to get this out there. And that is that, you know, the people who I love the most, I treat the best. Or, you know, I do anything for them and like, you know, maybe other people, like I do whatever. You know, there's some people who operate that way, but when it comes to abusiveness and disordered people, I mean, you need intimacy and vulnerability. The point of a lot of abuse is to force the other person to be vulnerable in malignant ways and undermine their autonomy to make them a part of you or subservient to you. Mm-hmm. And uh, Sam Vatten is actually, hopefully everybody uh, loves the reference, but, you know, he's actually put it really starkly that intimacy is required for abuse to flourish. It's what it brings out of, you know, like, who do you abuse? Your partner, uh, vulnerable people under your care, like elderly parents, your children. You can't really chronically abuse somebody if there is not an intimacy and a vulnerability of theirs that you can exploit. And that's the thing that makes it so perverse and so frowned upon is precisely the fact that you are supposed to love these people you're supposed to treat them better and yet for some people if intimacy and vulnerability is tied up with a lot of damage and trauma and pain or if you simply don't know how to manage it properly there's some terrifying on their own they're they can easily be overwhelming even for people who have had relatively regular healthy lives and so if you are afraid 
of it and you see it in somebody else, it's that thing of you're attacking something that you're afraid of in you or you're trying to pretend it doesn't exist. And so there is a way in which the people who you love very easily can be the ones who you abuse the most if you have not reconciled your own things. Yeah. And that actually leads into another point that I could mention here, which is you saying, thinking about your experiences, your deficiencies and lacks in your own upbringing, and then bringing it in towards your your own child. And uh, Mm -hmm. this is something where awareness and reflection are so crucial. And that is that if you are doing something that is like what you're like, you know, you're parenting and everybody's been parented, you know, whether poorly, Mm -hmm. poorly or absently or Mm -hmm. well, like you have been parented in some way, the if you do not know any better, you haven't learned any better, you are going to default to what you've seen. It doesn't it doesn't matter if it's like bad or good. You think that like, well, I'm going to do better. And it's just like. Yeah, your mind has to know that something is possible for it to act on it, both mm-hmm. like consciously or unconsciously. And so even if your childhood sucked, if you haven't done the work to show or teach yourself what it feels like to do other things, and then you can rely on that in your interactions with your own child or other people or whatever you're trying to facilitate, this is where in ignorance or unawareness and in your blind spots, you will default to the behaviors. It's kind of like, you know, knowing how to drive a car or knowing how to use a fork is like, you you don't even think about it. You just do the thing that you know. It's just so easy for you. And it can sometimes take a lot to get to those things that are so close to you that you know so damn well. Like, you know, I was treated this way for God knows how many years. And so this is how I interact with a child. Like it was what was done to me. And it takes so much effort to actually get that far enough away from you to look at it and think about it. Mm-hmm. And I want to make another decision here. Like, how do you even know what direction to go in? Right. So yeah, I there there are a couple things I could say, but more points from what you've said. But you know, <laughs> anything you want to jump in on there? Uh, yeah, it's so interesting because I find that you said the default, the default thing. It's so weird because when I look back at myself, I was so like obviously rebellious. So I feel like there was so much of me that didn't want to be like my parents, especially my mom. And so I feel like I was doing so much to be the opposite, but in some weird twisted way ended up being the same. (laughs) It's just such a weird... You can try to get away from somebody, like do the opposite, but if you're going in a circle, you're going to end up in the same place. Yeah, for sure. And that's where I'm at. Like, And I think we talked about this on the forum a little bit about the enmeshment too, that I feel entangled up with when it comes to my mom and I'm starting to realize may also be a little bit, well, maybe not a little bit, but from my dad as well. But yeah, just the realization is just so, I mean, it's something that I would say I'm grateful for though. Something, this is something that I, I absolutely am grateful for though, because something that I've mentioned to a friend of mine in the past is like wanting to take myself off of pedestals like one at a time at least keep knocking myself off of these pedestals kind of like back down to reality a little bit just so long as you leave the ones that i'm on alone sounds perfectly fine just like purely your own yeah (laughs) yes my own my own (laughs) my own idealized pedestals that i've had myself on in in different places or grandiose if you want to call it what's so weird about this whole space 
is that it's so fascinating and humiliating. <laughs> wow, absolutely. <laughs> it's fascinating and it's humiliating at the same time. Like, it's, you know, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, I think that's a really important thing to say is a lot of parents think that, you know, stiff upper lip and like sternness and children have to listen and kept in order. And we're getting past, like, I think we're, our cultures are really past that a lot. Yeah. But really being soft enough to feel that humiliation, to feel like you've done something wrong is a way of respecting the child because, you know, you can feel humiliated from peers and other equals when you feel like you haven't lived up or you've done something to cause shame. And if you do respect your child, you are trying to teach them to be a person, to be an independent, autonomous, flourishing human being. And there should be times where if you've done things that are wrong or shameful, that you should feel humiliated. And it should be okay for you to let them into that experience. I don't think that degrades your authority as a parent to say to your child that like I have enough respect for you and want to show you like what being human is like that I'm willing to be soft enough to be like yeah no I've fucked this one up royally like you know I wish I could have another take but I don't and we gotta do the best with where we're at but I think um, precisely that you're saying that the fear of being humiliated or the insecurity of being vulnerable before your own child is something that causes a lot of parents to act in ways that can undermine intimacy or a healthy connection and I think that is some of the foundations of abusive behaviors is the fear of being the dependent one even to this dependent on you. And I think also I just want to say for the trying to rebel, which is funny that you say about coming back because it's, uh, again, it's a black and white thinking or that duality of they did this, so I'm going to do that. But then yeah. everything is always more complicated than that. So when you try to like keep these strict dichotomies, they don't stand. So you try to do the opposite and then you end up in some way doing the same. And it's just that. Yeah. You know, it's very typical. And it also shows, I think, the weakness of trying to live your life or trying to choose your behaviors or your relationships based on what you don't want is, you know, that's still a way of being caught up in the thing that you're reacting against. And so the fact that you then end up back there, it's kind of like somebody saying, you know, don't think about ponies. Like, you know, just put that thought out of your head. Just don't. And then what are you going to do? You're (laughs) immediately thinking about ponies. Yeah. So it's just like, I'm not going to do this with my parents. I'm not going to do it. And then like, what do you do? Well, I mean, your neuroticism of trying to react against it actually ends up making it more real and manifesting it. And the way to actually. Self-fulfilling prophecy. Yeah. Oh, don't we love those here? Don't you love them? (laughs) And yeah, it's funny that the way to get away from it is actually to have a positive vision of something that you want to be, something you've intentionally chosen that you want to lean into. And that can get you away from another way of being, because this is actually something you can then practice and cultivate. You don't have to ruminate on the the thing that you're trying not to be loses power or force as something else takes up more of your time and emotional and mental bandwidth. Yeah. And that's the way to actually move away from something. Interesting. Yeah. My whole my whole approach was rebellious. Like because I definitely, I didn't even, I would say I was a more permissive parent as well because I was afraid to put as many restrictions as I had on myself and so on and so forth. So yeah, very, yeah, very interesting. Because as I got 
closer to all this realization, that's what it was starting to feel like. Like you just said, like self-fulfilling prophecy. Like that's, it was just like, wow, all this time I've been trying not to be, but then I am? Like what? (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's just, you know, you still let it have power over you is the problem. And that power then manifests as, you know, this is one of the reasons why, you know, uh, sometimes I use the analogy of getting into a groove or a rut. And it's very true of like, you get into a rut with your thoughts and your patterns and trying to say like, I'm not going to do the thing. It's just another way of still thinking about the thing. Like you're still spinning your wheels out in the same place. Like you really gotta like get in there and get your wheels out of that ditch, out of that rut and moving somewhere else. Like you, you know, it's like saying that, you know, you're going to get over an ex that you really cared about by just like really thinking about how much you're over them. Like, it's just, no, you gotta like get out there and like do a hobby, spend time with friends, meet somebody new. Like you have to do something positive. You have to engage with life to get over things. And so those ways of trying to anxiously ruminate and constantly like linger where the old wound was are ways of refusing to live life or ways of being scared of letting go of the past hurt dang not you reading me Oh my oh, we, yes. we had a high forecast on the empathy forecast here so the overlord living up yes so what are you at right now? 86? You go, 86, gonna, yeah. We'll, we'll bump that up. After. Bump it up a couple notches. <laughs> bump it up a couple notches. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I I, I agree. I think that's, that's definitely a place that I get stuck in is... And I can, right now, especially, I'm very aware. Now I'm very aware of, like, when it's actually happening. So, you know, I am definitely someone that will get stuck in my head and my thoughts even when i am having a new idea or something like that i'll think about it to death but then not the actual active part of things is is usually dormant <laughs> mm-hmm. but i can recognize when i get stuck like that now and then feel the difference between thinking about it and thinking that it's real versus actually doing it and i and i know that seems like it could be a trivial thing to really uh, to, to to realize but it something that I didn't realize about myself. So yeah, like interacting with life, you know, which is something that I find I get stuck. Like I I get very being isolated and kind of withdrawing is definitely a comfort space for me. 100%. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think that ties in really neatly with some of what you told me about your own background of being an isolated child, homeschooled, raised religious, which means that there are certain ways to be and other things are closed off to you. And I think part of the problem with being disordered is when kids are raised healthily, you do empower them. You give them a sense of agency, like you show them how they can transition into roles of doing things and what that feels like. And so they grow up with a sense of autonomy, of independence, of security, and they feel real they feel like their actions are impactful like they know how to manifest their will and so there's less anxiety there's less rumination there's less need to you know think to death but be afraid to do and it sounds like that's kind of the space that you're saying that you're in right now is that you know if you didn't have those experiences 
And then you start coming up to these errors as an adult and you start going into them and start being now worried about making further errors. You know, you're undermining your own confidence in your doing and you try to compensate for that confidence with obsessive ruminating, being neurotic. But those are, you know, it. there's a place for doing the reflection and thinking about things before you act. But then there's also a way of it can become an insecurity of trying to think instead of do, and you can never do wrong if you're just thinking, but then, you know, you're still not living, you're not manifesting. And that's something which more secure, healthy individuals are more comfortable with. And even myself, like, you know, people might look at some of the writing or some of the stuff I'm doing on the forum or like this podcast or some of the abilities I have and be like, wow, that guy's really secure, like super functional. It's like there, there are definitely areas in my life where I have profound learned helplessness or feel unimpactful or I don't feel real. And those are aspects of my own formation of things that I never learned to do because of the frictions and the unique experiences of my own childhood. And those things cost me a lot more effort, things that maybe other people might find trivial or easy, as opposed to some of the things that I pride myself on and and that I can put limitless amounts of energy and time into. And other people find it like near impossible or are just like, how does he do that? And I mean, it's not without a cost. There are ways in which there are things that I didn't get the experience of feeling competent in that makes it so that I still have those same blind spots now at this age. And it sounds like you're kind of articulating some of your own in terms of how you learn to relate to a child or how to even relate to yourself. I mean, I think I had another point here from before about your experience of loneliness as a child and then projecting it into your son of trying to relate to him and only having like that as something to kind of think about or to worry about your anxious about your own wound and so bringing it into your relationship and you know maybe your son does feel that way but there's also room for you to put yourself aside and be like hey like checking in like how are you feeling and trusting what he gives to you and building new experiences instead of trying to avoid the old ones is yeah it's it's showing your own discomfort or your own worry about things that you have been wounded in or you're not strong in. Does that whole ramble make sense? (laughs) So we have Joella back after a bit of an interruption, but you're going to respond to what I was just saying about loneliness as a child and projecting your own experience. Yes. Okay. So, and then you also mentioned, you know, putting myself aside and asking him how he's doing and how he's feeling and which is something that I do. When he was younger, I used to ask him how his brain was doing. Like that was one of my <laughs> little things I would ask him. And I, I would say, and, and for me, I really, like when I'm asking someone that question, whether it's my son or anyone, like I want to know like how you're doing. But growing up in a family where everything was just fine, I don't care. It's fine. It's okay. It's fine. Like, <laughs> like I just feel like that question is is difficult in my particular family. <laughs> so, you know, when I'm asking him, I was saying that sometimes he doesn't really want to talk about it or he he'll respond with like an I'm all right, you know, kind of response. And at this point, I know that when he uses there are certain words that he uses that kind of express that maybe he's not doing as great, so then I'll kind of prod a little bit more. But ultimately, he does like sometimes it takes him a second like if I ask him a question, he'll say to me, you know, I got to think about that for a little bit and then I'll come back and, and 
give you a response and how I'm feeling and so on and so forth. And he'll do that, which I respect. Like, I think, you know, regardless of the reason, like I I said earlier, like it could be because he's like, well, mom's going to cry if I say it like this. But (laughs) (laughs) regardless of that, him taking a moment to process, you know, is I think is fine. Like, I think that's good that he can do that (laughs) and not, you know, necessarily be, well, I don't know. I just feel like I noticed that he does that. And I think that when he does come back and has a response, we can, we can actually have a conversation, which, which is nice. So. I mean, that's actually an emotional competence skill, which is to not react in the moment and to be able to calm yourself down, think about what you want to say, anticipate the other person's needs and come back when you think you're going to be able to manage it well. Yeah. Just, you know, it's, it's one of those things that are in handbooks of how, of emotional coping skills. And so that's a very good thing to do if that's how you work and how you need to do it. Yeah. Yeah. So I think those types of things that when I see him being able to kind of work through things that way, I think, you know, even his, even his boundary setting and stuff like that, he's pretty good. He's pretty good. I'm not going to lie. He is. Dang, you got a little G over there. He's pretty good. I'll be like, dang, how do you do that? (laughs) You got to teach me some of that. Right. Yeah. And, you know, that's kind of funny because that's also a place where people can be really vulnerable is letting their children teach them, almost reparent them on things that they're better at. I mean, this oh, is something yeah. this is something that I also struggled with with my mother was, you know, some of the grandiosity and entitlement to being better and in the superior position. And mm-hmm. she absolutely, uh, you know, as I said, even recently, like she doesn't even want to give me a position of authority over my own experience as right. a partially black man. Right. And, you know, it's ludicrous, but it's, if you're that insecure and you need, control that badly. I mean, there's all sorts of things that you'd refuse to listen to from your purported dependent and you lose out on learning from them what they're strong at and what they can offer you. And your son sounds kind of similar to me in that I learned a lot of, well, I, I learned a lot of skills and communication techniques and ways of doing it, but I certainly was not quite at this point for a very long time. I think that when I was younger, I had a lot of raw emotionality and empathy, but, and I kind of knew what to say and do, but Uh the practice was just too overwhelming and too difficult in my case. There was just too many feelings and intensity and I had to repress a lot. And it was just a nightmare. So it it took me a while to get to the point where I am right now, where I can kind of tame the inferno, so to speak, and have it come out in a way that is helpful and useful. Being able to, it is not a weakness to anybody who's listening to be willing to approach your child who is maybe skilled or gifted in certain ways and can offer things to you or show you certain things. And I mean, younger generations, they always have, they have more resources, they're more fluent in things that are faster and more rapid. And so there is a way in which, you know, you want to provide wisdom and foundation and support, but then there are ways in which they can give you a new new set of eyes or skills that weren't talked about when you were younger that you missed out on acquiring. And so that is actually a sign of of security if you are willing to consider your child as being able to 
also have this effect on you. And that's how to teach them the foundations of a healthy reciprocal relationship, which is people relating to each other from the places that they're strong and caring for the weaknesses and vulnerability of the other person. Yeah, I absolutely learn from my son all the time. <laughs> that's not that's not a question. You know, he's I I do. Yeah. And I um, like his opinions and what he has to say about the world in which he lives. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And um, I guess one other thing that I want to touch on, and then maybe okay. we'll, uh, you know, I mean, we can we can definitely probe in here. Okay. And then maybe we'll cut this episode there. But that okay. is something that you mentioned about having your son and where you started. Mm-hmm. And, and that, so the one of the questions, which is why do people have children in the first place? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we chatted about this a bit already. And so I'll yeah. say that, you know, when I was prepping, one of the people who I had in mind was Cluster B Milkshake, who I remember said that she had her first son or child uh, mm-hmm. in order to force her to get her life together. And it just yeah. struck me so much because I define having children and trying to raise them as your goal being to raise a autonomous, full, functional, flourishing human being who will one day be able to stand on their own two feet and mm-hmm. go out and do things in the world. Mm-hmm. And you start to fall short in the that kind of ideal of parenting when you start using your child or instrumentalizing them or neglecting right. them or failing to teach them adequately, which is a way that I think people can be disordered, is if there's a lack of nurture and guidance about things that people really need. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, other people can have children for all sorts of other reasons, you know, to cement a relationship or if somebody's really malignant and spiteful to spite the other person to retain right. control over their lives. Right. And so this is... Uh, your motivations in parenting and coming into that space are far and few between like there's all sorts of places you can go. And if, you know, people being disordered, I think it's something where this is a very intimate and vulnerable decision and you can come to it from a place of weakness. You can come to it from a place of what do I need and hunger for and crave as opposed to what is a balance between what I need and what I can offer and what this person I'm going to bring into the world is going to need and I can provide and then what they're going to offer. Right. I remember that you had something to say about this. Right. So I said that my first clear thought when I found out that I was pregnant was, you know, finally someone to love me, which now, of course, I, (laughs) I realized, I think I realized how intense that was a while back, but now in context with everything that I'm, I'm realizing now, I just realized how much pressure that puts on a baby. <laughs> and it doesn't, yeah, you're not starting from a place of what can you give or teach or nurture. You know, you're, t- you're starting from a place of what can I take? And that's not what bringing children into the world is for. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's a big one that, that, that's very, like, it's a very clear memory, you know, with me, you know, and then the position obviously that I started in was, was also from a place of lack anyway. So yeah, yeah, it's a tough place to be in and very tough for the baby, for the child. 
Yeah, and I mean, you know, you also mentioned enmeshment with your son, and I mean, this is oh, yeah. uh, a part of how enmeshment comes about when you relate from a place of weakness. You use or need them to help buttress your psyche or your ego or to fulfill your unmet needs and yeah. become enmeshed in that they become an extension of yourself. Don't allow them to separate or individuate, and you don't see them as autonomous, but choosing to be connected to you. And yeah, that's how you run into issues of papering over what their own identity is or not allowing them to grow and develop. Yeah, the interesting thing that comes to mind as well when you say that here's somebody who can finally love me is that, at least in my conception, love is most powerful when it's voluntary, when it's free, when the person yeah. who is giving it could not love you, which is fucking terrifying. Mm -hmm. But they've made the decision to love you, to stay with you, to work through the difficulties, to right. want to be with you. And I think that love as, well, we have this relationship, so now you're stuck in it and anything that follows, like you're along for the ride, <laughs> got you, sucker. Right. Um, that is a conception of love of kind of possessiveness or control that does turn abusive. It's this connection lasts no matter what. And as an autonomous free person, like you always, a relationship isn't healthy if you cannot take space or distance or choose to absence yourself if you feel like it is not working out for you or it's damaging to you. Right. And usually your sense of security in a loving relationship should be that you have enough self-worth and self-love and you provide enough to the other person that you know that or you can feel secure that they will continue to make the decision to want to be with you. Right. Um, and so, yeah, deciding even uh, it's kind of almost wrongheaded in the first place to think, well, now here is finally somebody who will love me as opposed to, well, you know, I'm bringing this person into the world and I will constantly have to do the work of being lovable and providing love and maintaining that. It is an active force, not one that, well, this just happened, so now we're stuck with it. I mean, that's kind of how you get into the mindset of my mother and her getting blindsided when I finally gathered enough strength to say, you know, right. if I love myself, I have to put boundaries here. Right. Yeah. I. It's, it's so interesting, especially the fact that I have a boy. It, well, recently, I've kind of been trying to untangle some of the stuff that I didn't think was happening when it came to my my father and it's it's interesting because sometimes i wonder if it would have been i don't know that it would have been immensely different but if the whole thing would have looked a little bit different well, well it had to have but anyway if i would have had a girl because of some of the issues that i've encountered and experienced when it comes to men, boys when I was younger and so on and so forth. So it's just interesting to wonder because sometimes when you talk about patterns and like well, how we were saying how you do one thing is how you do everything. It's been more subtle, maybe, <laughs> but like the same self-sabotaging pattern has played out with my son in, in certain respects. And, and now it's just all becoming a lot more clear for, for myself, at least. So Sometimes I wonder what what the difference would have been if I would have had a girl. Not because I don't want my son or love my son. I'm just wondering. 
Yeah. And you know, that's a very good point to bring up. And this is another reason why to motivate people to work on their stuff is because like, you know, the experiences you have towards genders, it's a hugely important part of what shapes our world and our identity. And you will carry in the traumas and experiences you've had with it. I think Mm -hmm. a large part of the tragedy with my mother was me, you know, knowing mom is hurt, something's happened to her. What happened? How do I heal it and fix it and then failing for getting frustrated and you know all the things that happen but yeah it definitely would have been a different experience if i were a girl absolutely Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um and you can already uh, see from some of the things i've divulged about my relationship how my mother's experiences with men or in gender shaped her treatment towards me right and if she had had a better grasp on that and been able to you know overcome it and then come and see me for who I am and what I uniquely have to offer. Maybe it would have been different, um, right. but she wasn't able to. Do it well. And yeah, it just, it, it's hard to imagine just how much more different everything would have been if I'd uh, popped out with something different between my legs, just to be <laughs> real freaking crude about it. Yeah. Hmm. Interesting. But yeah. I mean, I guess the real interesting thing that you bring up there is, yeah, it would have been different with your son, but then still kind of that core desire of having somebody who right. love you back. Like that's kind of consistent. Like you can have that um, right. either way. Like the way that love would come out would certainly be different, but you can still have that need expressed either right. way. So yeah, I think we've covered quite some distance. I think we've given the audience and ourselves quite a lot to think about and more directions to go in. Wouldn't you say, Joella? I would say so. All right. Well, you know what? Unanimous uh, consent. So uh, if I had a hammer or a gavel, I'd bang it. I think we'll call <laughs> the episode there. But it was great to have you on. And it was great you. to talk to you. Yeah, it was great to think about my own issues in juxtaposition with some of what you've experienced as well. You've caused me to think about a couple things maybe a little bit differently. So thank you very much for that. Yes. And... Uh... Same here. Thank you. I appreciate your your input and your perspective. Perfect. Well, then, thanks for coming. We'll have you on again soon, hopefully. And uh, until then, goodbye, our loyal and captive audience. And uh, we'll see you all again soon. All right.